Well, today we, we wrap up the first part of our Isaiah sermon series study. Next week, we're going to begin a summer series on 1 Peter. Uh, so maybe do a little background reading on that uh, and come ready to go next week. Um, you know, but today we're, we're in Isaiah. And pretty much all biblical scholars agree that the book of Isaiah has two major parts called book one and book two. Yeah, I think they come up with different names. But book one ends today in, in chapter 39. And book two will begin in the fall. Now, the ending of book one is meant to create in us um, a longing for the promises of book two. The promises of God to send a servant, Messiah, king, who will be unlike all other earthly kings. He, he will not fail. He will serve with a single-mindedness, with passion for the glory of God. He will once and for all save God's people, and he will one day usher in an eternal heaven on earth. And of course, today, we know this king King Jesus, the Messiah, King, Son of God. Book two, which we're going to have to wait a little bit to get to, book two begins with these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Before the people of God can get there, they've got to get to the end of their rope in book one. For book one leaves us with this feeling that there's nowhere else to turn. Book one leaves us with this feeling, our Lord, come. Even the good king, King Hezekiah, in the end, is a failure. I think we all know what failure is like, right? If you're a Christian, you know this, right? That your life is just like a seesaw of faithfulness and failure. <laughs> and so the Christian life is a daily cry. Come, Lord Jesus. In the long section we're about to read, it's long, you have to bear with me, and I want you to have your Bibles open if you can. Um, we see that King Hezekiah is on his deathbed, page 598. But God gives him a new lease on life. He gives him 15 more years to live for God's glory, but we also see that he is double-minded. He trusts in God, and he says, I'm going to live for you, but not really. But it's a warning for us all. Isaiah, beginning in chapter 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. <laughs> then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, messianic there. I have heard your prayer. 
I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord, and the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, that's his dad, turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial 10 steps by which it had declined. He turned back time. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. He's writing this in memory of what had taken place. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the habitants of the world my dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver. I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to day, you bring me to an end. I called myself until morning. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to day, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walked slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, by these things men live, and in these things is, is the life of my spirit. O oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me. And we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. <clears throat> now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, uh, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house 
and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my day. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. It is a challenging word. It is a word that causes us to realize, um, hopefully, that we're no better than Hezekiah. We are so quick and prone to fail. We are spring-loaded <laughs> to turn from you. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'd only been a Christian for a couple years. Those of you who don't know me, I became a Christian when I was 29. I was a raging atheist, and the Lord got a hold of me. Um, and I remember, like, year one or two, I was reading through the books, First and Second Samuel. And I remember coming across this character, King Saul. He was the first king um, of Israel. He was uh, tall and good-looking, so I kind of I was like, okay, kind of like to be like King Saul. But then I saw how his life was how he had taken, how God had anointed him and blessed him, but then how Saul had taken the grace of God for granted, and he lived with a cavalier attitude towards God. I remember saying to myself, I hope I never become like Saul. 750 years later, the disciple James wrote about people like King Saul. He said he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And later in the letter, he said, draw near to God, right? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, what is double-mindedness? Well, for the high schoolers here, uh, double-mindedness is when you want to date Mary Ann because she's a lot of fun, but also ginger because she's smoking hot. Double-mindedness can get a boy in a lot of trouble with girls. But even worse, with regards to God, double-mindedness can shipwreck your faith. And that is what happened to King Hezekiah in our text. And oh, by the way, the Bible calls King Hezekiah one of the few good kings. But in the end, he failed. And my friends, this should worry us living with great faith and fruitfulness, but then blowing it in the end and shipwrecking our faith. Like Hezekiah, we can go seasons of seemingly smooth sailing, but then in a short period of false confidence, self-interest, we wreck our ship. The only ship, the one ship that God gives each of us. I worry about this. In my life, I've prayed this prayer numerous times. Lord, take my life today if tomorrow I'm going to shipwreck my faith. 
And so if I die in a car crash tomorrow, consider it possible that the Lord had heard my prayer, and so don't mourn for me. See, it's true, right? We can live with a a false confidence that, that we, we will never shipwreck our faith. That's for those other Christians. Don't be so fast to dismiss it. You might pat yourself on the back and say, I'll never cheat on my spouse or embezzle from work or turn from my true love in Christ and devote myself to things on earth. But remember the disciples at the Last Supper. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And how did the disciples respond? Not me, not me, not me, no. Each one to a person responded by asking, is it I, Lord? In other words, will it be me who shipwrecks my faith and betrays you? Notice this is a healthy self-awareness. The Titanic was heralded as being so safe It was said that even God couldn't sink it. The number one antidote to shipwrecking your faith is to believe that you are susceptible to shipwrecking your faith. Now, why is this story in the Bible? A couple reasons. One, to humble us. And two, to cause us to cry out, come, Lord Jesus. To cry out for for, for chapter 40. Comfort, comfort for my people. By the time you get to the end of book one, does it not end on just utter failure with Hezekiah? You don't understand. We'll get to it in a moment. Even the good king failed. All the other kings failed. All the people of God failed. So by the end, you get to this huge longing for the grace of God to be on the move with his people. Send this king from heaven now, not tomorrow. We need him now. Do you feel like that in your walk with the Lord? You know, the, um, the early church had a saying. It was kind of like a code word that was passed around. The saying was Maranatha. It's an Aramaic word. They spoke Aramaic back then. It's actually two words, a compound word. It means our Lord. Come. Paul used it in his first letter to the Corinthians. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha, our Lord, come. As Diane read earlier in Revelation 22, in the very last words of the Bible, John speaks, uh, Jesus speaks to John and says, surely I'm coming soon. And then John ends by saying, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Our Lord, come, is the cry of God's people back then, and it's the cry of God's people today. So we're going to study our sermon text so that may humble us, so that we realize that our greatest need is for Christ to come, to rule now in our hearts and in our life, and then in the future forever. So come, Lord Jesus. We're going to divide our time under two points. First is the smooth sailing. We got any sailors here? I think we do. Uh, and then the shipwreck. Now, none of you want to shipwreck your nice sailboats, do you? Um, so smooth sailing. The smooth sailing here begins with what we see as a new lease on life. You know, one of the great ironies of life is that you don't know how great life is until it's about to be taken away. 
I confess I don't know that. That's what happened to Hezekiah. As we read in verse 1, we read that King Hezekiah became sick to the point of being on his deathbed, and Isaiah comes to him and says, prepare to meet your Lord, for God has declared you will not recover. Yikes. And yet, what does Hezekiah do? Oh, my gosh. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord with such great zeal. And notice how he pleads. He pleads his record of faithfulness to God. Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, please, O Lord, remember how I walk before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Listen, don't get Hezekiah's pleading wrong. God does not owe us answered prayer based upon how good our life has been in the past. No, what we see here is, is Hezekiah is praying as one who has a saving relationship with God. It's there. And Hezekiah has responded to God's grace in the past with great acts of faith and trust and obedience. Christian, just like you have. It is because of this fruit-producing relationship that you and I and Hezekiah can plead our case. And if you're a Christian, then you know like Hezekiah that the best you can be this side of heaven is a mixture of faithfulness and failure. At best. But also know this. God knows this about us. And God is a God of second chances. He wants us to know that he is committed to us at a deep, deep level. And so God responds to Hezekiah's prayer in ways that seemed favorable to Hezekiah. The Lord sends Isaiah to Hezekiah with the word. God declares he's going to add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Now, oh, on your deathbed to get not just two years or 10 years, but 15 years. How would you respond? What would you commit your life to? How would you then live? Listen, God doesn't owe us an additional 15, but this reveals the heart and the character of our Lord. He is committed to us at a deep level, his life-giving level. And because of this, God gives Hezekiah a sign that the 15 years, they're in the bank, don't worry, right? You know, God could say, yeah, I'm giving you 15, but you're like, yeah, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow a little worried, right? So, the sign involves a shadow being cast on some sort of sundial that Hezekiah's father Ahaz, I don't, we don't know if he really built like this giant sundial, most likely it was like a building that cast a shadow on some steps leading up to it. And so the sign God gives Hezekiah is that he miraculously, that's a hard word, he turns back time right before his eyes. It's as if he's saying, look, there you go. See that shadow? It's going backwards really fast, 10 steps. Therefore, know that I'm going to heal you and give you this new lease on life. God literally turned back the clock on Hezekiah's life. What are we to take from this? Simply that God delights to give us new life. In Christ Jesus, he has given us all a new lease on life, new loves, new priorities, new chances to bear fruit. If you're in Christ, then you live this new lease on life, life. Let me ask you, do you see your life this way? So that's Hezekiah's new lease on life as he's smooth sailing. 
now his for a response of devotion? Sort of. Hezekiah's response to devotion comes in a psalm that he writes in verses 10 through 20. Verse 9 tells us that this psalm was actually written after the fact about what it was like in the moment, right? So he looks back and he thinks of these thoughts that he had while he was surely dying. And so to speak, he's saying what we would think, perhaps, on our own deathbeds. First, we see there's this longing for life and it comes in the lament of the dying. He begins by lamenting, by stating that he's just too young to die, right? Hello, like, unless you're Barbara Albright, right? You're like, you pretty much feel like you're too young to die. Verse 10, in the middle, she passed away. She was 95, 98, oh my gosh. Ooh, all right, I must have missed a birthday there. Um, verse 10, in the middle of my days, I must depart, right in the middle of them. Then he laments that he'll no longer be able to look upon the inhabitants of this world. In other words, no more happy hour at M.J. Dowling's, right, with my buddies. In verses 12 to 14, he laments the cost of death. Death appears as a thief who plucks your life like a tent being rolled up for storage or, or like a weaver of rugs who the rug is your life and once it's done, it's just cut off and thrown to the side. Such is life, such is death. There is no dignity in death. At the end of his lament, he confesses how death oppresses him and that there's nothing Hezekiah can do. So he pleads to the Lord in verse 15, O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. I've never been on, on my deathbed to know that this is it, right? There will be no tomorrow. There will be no next week. The world will just keep on going without me. Beginning in verse 15, the song turns from lament to praise. Hezekiah sings of his longing for God. Listen, seriously, listen. The only thing worse than being on your deathbed singing a lament is to be on your deathbed without any reason to rejoice in the Lord. Every 6.3 days, a million people die on this planet. One every two seconds. Four people. So consider the millions of people who die every year without Christ. Millions who lie on their deathbed with nothing but a lament. But praise God that he has given us a reason to praise him in our deaths. This past week, the great Reverend Tim Keller passed away from pancreatic cancer. Here's what his son Michael, a friend of mine, tweeted. And notice the joyful praise in Tim's last words on earth. Timothy J. Keller, husband, father, grandfather, mentor, friend, pastor, and scholar died this morning at home. Dad waited until he was alone with mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words, which are, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Back to my point, there's nothing worse to be, than be on your bed, deathbed without a relationship with God in which you're able to rejoice in the work of your Savior. The Savior who said to us, I am, what, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. 
Do you believe that? So God gives another 15 years to Hezekiah's life, and Hezekiah pledges he will make the best use of it for God's glory. Verse 15, he says, I will walk slowly all my remaining years. In other words, I'm going to watch my step. Don't you worry about me. In verse 17, he acknowledges that God in mercy has forgiven his sins. Look what he says. Verse 17, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. My friends, Hezekiah is a believer. He rests in the grace of God like you and like me. And then Hezekiah points out the truth that the dead, guess what? They can no longer live in faith. They can no longer. Look at verse 18 and 19. For Sheol, that's the abode of the dead, does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down in the pit, go down in the grave, do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. What's going on here? Think it through. Now, while you are alive, is the only time in all eternity that you get to live by faith. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love greater? Well, think it through. Because when you die and go to heaven, you will continue to love like you never have before. But you will no longer live in faith or in hope. You will no longer live by faith. You will live by sight. The days of faith will be over someday for you and for me. This means that today you and I get to live our lives as a response to God's grace, that God has more than just hidden our sins behind his back. He's forever removed them by placing them upon his son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We right now get to walk by faith and not by sight. We get to trust in God and the Holy Spirit to empower us to abide in Christ and to walk in ways that honor God. But when you die, that battle will be over. Many a soldier returns from war and feels empty. They confess they never felt more alive than when they were deep in the battle. It's like that for Christians too. When we battle in the strength of the Lord, when we, I know it's hard, I know at times we fall, but when we abide in Christ and battle against the flesh, the sin that, that still entangles us, do we not at that moment feel alive? Thank you, God, for walking with me, pointing this out, changing me. Or if we fail, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. This is quite a battle. I'm glad you're in it with me. But there'll be a day when that's over. But today you get to be in the battle. You get to live by faith. And so today we get to resound with delight like Hezekiah in verse 19. Do you see that? The living, the living, he thanks you as I do today. Now, not that in heaven we don't get to thank God, but you know what I'm saying. God has given you a new lease on life today. Today you get to live by faith. So let us delight in this truth. So this is the smooth sailing of uh, Hezekiah. It's his new lease on life. 
He promises uh, to use the rest of his days with great faithfulness for the glory of God. And I believe his words are true, right? But all is not well. As in the words of John Steinbeck, the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. Sadly, the plans of Hezekiah lead to a shipwreck of titanic proportion. You know, no one ever wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to shipwreck my faith and my life. Right? No, it happens slowly, secretly. Your patterns change. Your goals change. Your heart grows dim to the things of God. And then, bam, you find yourself where you thought you would never be. That is how it was for Hezekiah. When we put on our Sherlock Holmes caps, we see something curious at the very end of chapter 38 and verses 21 and 28. The Lord had spoken to Hezekiah and said he would add 15 years to his life. Then we get this interlude of him like inserting this song. But then we get back to the heart of the matter. He'd given him 15 years to his life. He turned back, gave him a sign. And now Isaiah is in front of him and he says, I'm going to, we're going to touch you, uh, and we're going to heal you. And how does Hezekiah respond? Let's read. Now Isaiah said to him, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Did you catch that? Something seems out of place there. What is the sign that I'll be healed? Why? God just gave him a sign. He said, I'm going to give you 15 years, and here's the sign. And now Hezekiah asks for a sign. Take a moment to let this reality sink in. Hezekiah trusts God, sort of. What's happened seems so innocuous to Hezekiah. God healed Hezekiah, gave him 15 more years, and at some point, evidently early on, he starts taking the grace of God for granted. Now remember, this is the problem with God's people throughout the book of Isaiah, living with God at arm's length, relating to God like he's a rich uncle who just bails you out at any moment so that you can get back to living life your way. But God will not let his people live with him as a good luck charm. He will either be your one true Lord or he will oppose you for your own good. Hezekiah knew that, but he forgot it. And so can we. And so he went from trusting in God to feeling like God cannot be trusted. That's the theme of the story of chapter 39. The king of Babylon, Merodach Baladan, was a thorn in the side of Assyria. He was quite a warrior. Eventually, Babylon would overthrow Assyria, and Merodach Baladan, he was like this rebellious, zealous leader who was doing a lot of damage. And Babylon was much, much larger, much wealthier than Judah. Babylon was known for its great arts and culture and buildings. King Hezekiah was a small fry compared to Merodach Baladan. But envoys from the king of Babylon 
came to tiny old Jerusalem. Hezekiah is feeling important. Maybe he's got a new ally. He said in his best Miss Piggy voice, don't, don't, don't laugh, I'm going to try my best. The king of Babylon <laughs> sent envoys to moi. That turned out better than I thought it would. Okay. God promised to keep the Assyrians away, remember? But Merodach Baladan seems a sure thing. And with foolish pride, Hezekiah takes the envoy on a tour of his palace and the storehouses of this kingdom. He shows him all the gold, all the silver that God had entrusted him to steward. He thought he was currying their favor. He thought he was showing them how wealthy he was. I could be a good ally. Ortland writes, Hezekiah wants to be up in the big leagues. Listen, even if God isn't there. But these Babylonians don't respect him. In their eyes, he's just another petty king from the boondocks. They walk with him from room to room, politely smiling, ooing and aahing. Oh, yes, that's beautiful. Oh, yes. But guess what? They have seen wealth many times greater in their own kingdom. This was nothing. They're just making a mental inventory of what someday they'll carry back to Babylon. Isaiah hears of it and he confronts Hezekiah. Who are these men? Oh, don't worry, they came from afar. Uh, Babylon, I think. I didn't, I showed them everything. They seem nice. Then the Lord spoke through Isaiah and said, there is a day coming when everything in your house, even your children, will be carried off into exile in Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And then, listen, the very last verse reveals, and this is where, remember, this is where book one of Isaiah ends, right here. It shows us how shipwrecked his faith is. Verse eight, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. How can he say that? For he thought there will be peace and security in my day. Did you pick up on how bad Hezekiah's response is? He says it's good. And in the original Hebrew, it's emphatic as in good. Whew. You had me worry there for a moment. When you said the Babylonians were coming to destroy this place, take everything away, I thought you meant like within my 15 years God gave me. Oh, what a relief. There will be peace and security in my day. Whew. Do you see how his double-mindedness turned into a single-mindedness for himself? Now, before we point our fingers and say, what's wrong with you, Hezekiah? Let's be honest with ourselves. Isn't it true? Even on our best days, we trust in God, sort of. And so again, why is this story in the Bible? Why is it at the end of book one of Isaiah? So that we see our lives in the double-mindedness of Hezekiah displayed on a grand scale. When you and I rightly respond to the warning that is Hezekiah's life, and when we respond to the warning of other Christians we see or their faith becomes shipwrecked, we are right to respond, is it I, Lord? 
The response isn't to say, I could never do that. The response is to say, I'm not so sure. Could this be me someday? Please, Lord, let it not be me. Come, Lord Jesus. Lead me, guide me, feed me, lest I turn and dishonor you. See, just as the life of Hezekiah doesn't make sense, such faithfulness for so long and then such failure, it doesn't make sense. But this is who we are. We don't make sense. And so we need constant renewal. And thankfully, God has a way. Portland provides two simple observations. First, if you're a believer, remember that your sanctification is incomplete. And every single day, you need a refresh from the Lord. And remember the words of Jesus, abide in me, for apart from me, what? You can bear no good fruit. Every day we face temptations. They whisper to us in such a way that we hardly recognize them. And so we need to remember that we are not as strong as we think we are. So let's be realistic. I like what Ortland writes. Listen, he says, listen, we are spring-loaded to fall away from God. If you say that's not you, I'm afraid you don't know yourself very well. It really isn't that hard to do, just a season or two of drifting from Christ, and boom, you strike an iceberg. So first, we must be quick. We must know how quick and easy it is to stray from Christ. We're not so strong as we think. And then when you grieve the fact that you're spring-loaded to fall away from God, it is then that you stop trusting yourself to do what is right, and then you cry out, our Lord, come. And he comes to you by his Holy Spirit and by his Holy Word and by his holy people. And so please recognize that it is, that it is the seemingly, listen, insignificant things that keep you from failure. Dependence upon Christ in prayer. Devotion to scripture and study. Dependence upon others who can hold you accountable. My friends, that is why discipleship is our number one priority at Grace Church. It is also number two and number three. Our grace groups are the means by which Jesus implemented his care for his church. Disciples making disciples, disciples encouraging each other, praying for one another, holding each other accountable. And so if you're in a grace group, let others catch you if you start drifting. Let others encourage you towards faithfulness in the small things that seem insignificant. And receive the kindness of Christ as he calls you back to himself in the small things. And listen, even if you have drifted to the point of shipwreck, there's hope for you. How do we know? Well, Christ can meet you and carry you out. Think of Peter. That night in the upper room, Jesus said he would be arrested and that all the disciples would scatter Remember how Peter responded, not me, Jesus. Heck no, these other schmucks. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. 
not me. I'll die with you. Right? Jesus said, Peter, Peter, Peter. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have divided and I mean not once, not twice, but three times. And then it happened. See, Peter saw himself as the unsinkable Titanic. But then, after Jesus was arrested, people kept coming up to Peter, asking him if he knew Jesus. And with each one, he denied even knowing him. And then the rooster crowed, and Peter wept bitterly. Have you ever wept bitterly over the reality that you come to realize that you have nothing in yourself, that you are shipwrecked? You ever gotten there? There's hope. Fast forward three days. Jesus is risen. And remember at the end of Mark's gospel, three women arrive at the tomb. It's empty. And an angel sent by Jesus tells them, here's what he says, go and get the disciples and Peter and go and meet the Lord. Why? Why does he single Peter out? Because Jesus wanted to make sure that sorrowful Peter comes to see him. When your faith is shipwrecked and you feel such great shame, you do not feel worthy to be in the presence of Jesus, right? Jesus wanted to make sure, Peter, I want you there. And when, and when he saw him, Peter goes crazy, can't believe it's the Lord. Jesus cooks him a meal on the shore. And then Jesus asked Peter three times, once for each of his denial and betrayal, he says, do you love me? Peter says, of course I do, three times. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep, tend to my lamb. If you sense you failed the Lord beyond restoration, then you need to meditate on the life of Peter. Jesus delights in restoring failures, no matter how bad it's gotten. This should change how we look at other people. We Christians can be so judgmental. Can you believe what so-and-so did? Yeah, you better start believing it. Could be you too. Stop gossiping and go and show love to that person. Help them be restored. Bring them to Jesus. And so the story of Hezekiah properly causes us to be realistic about ourselves. We are spring-loaded to drift from God. But also it helps us to be realistic about what? About Christ. Christ loves empty, ungrateful, waffling, straying sinners. Like the good shepherd, he finds lost sheep like Peter, like you, like me. And he lays them on his shoulder and he carries them home, rejoicing. Only he restores our souls. And this communion table before us, it says all that and more. So, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it's good to get a punch in the gut by your Holy Spirit. We like to climb the ladder of our own self-righteousness, feel good about ourselves, point fingers at others who fail and think, wow, glad I'm not like them. Thank you, Lord, that you show us in Isaiah a man who loves you and yet failed, and how he points to our need for you to come. 
Help us to trust you with the small things so that you can do something big in our lives. Amen.